0: You're listening to the Sunday Messages podcast, brought to you by Cypress Creek Church. It's good to be with y'all this morning. I cannot believe that this year, in the fall, we will be celebrating 30 years of Crosstalk on the Texas State campus. We exist to make disciples who make disciples on the Texas State campus. And really, since the beginning of the new year, we have been looking at One of the great I am statements of Jesus, uh, it's found in John 14, six in which Jesus declares, I am the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me and we believe that and that is why we go. On campus, That is why you can find us there every day, is to proclaim the truth of Jesus and lead those who accept him to become fully devoted followers of him. Now, over the past few weeks, we've explored together what it means when we say that Jesus is the way. We came to realize that his work on the cross is sufficient for our salvation, that it's only through Jesus that we come to the Father, That there's no other way to right relationship with God except through the atoning work of Christ. Then we took a look at the implications of claiming that Jesus is the truth. That is to say that Jesus embodies the supreme revelation of God. In other words, in the person of Jesus, the word which we hold to be authoritative for our lives became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And in Jesus, we are oriented to what is ultimate reality, what is really true. And finally, we celebrated that Jesus is the life. In Jesus, we rest assured that we are given everlasting life. And we're rooted in the hope of an eternal communion with God. And I love that we started here this year. Because these claims that Jesus makes about his own identity are really foundational concepts for us as we understand our own standing with God. Because Jesus is the way, because Jesus is the truth and the life, we trust that we have been reconciled with God, that we can stand before God as holy and blameless in his sight. And when we come to understand those foundational concepts, our lives begin to change but that change doesn't happen overnight. Rather, it comes with fits and starts throughout a lifetime. Now, I hated taking psychology in college. I don't know if there are some people who can relate to that, but I hated it, and I slept through most of it, and 99% of it I most certainly do not remember. And I'm really hoping, I'm like peeking around, hoping Sean isn't here this morning. Uh, he'd be very ashamed of me, but let me see if I can redeem myself. In the 1% that I do remember, is a term called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance essentially means that you are holding competing viewpoints concurrently. In other words, what we do doesn't align with what we feel. And it makes us uncomfortable so we act in ways to decrease that stress and that discomfort. And there are two ways that we can resolve that internal conflict going on. The first of which is we change what we think. We change what we believe. Second is, we have to change our actions. We change how we act. And this often happens to us in our faith journey. We believe that Jesus is the way. We believe that he is the truth. We believe that he is the life, that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. But then, there are parts of our lives that don't match up with those statements. And so we come to this fork in the road where either our beliefs need to change or our actions need to change to resolve that tension that goes on within us. Now, I've always been really impressed with how deftly Paul handles this complex dynamic. You see, Paul talks a lot about how we have to be before we can do. You see, there are two parts to our faith, the first of which is where we stand. In theological terms, this is called justification. And then the the second piece of this is how we walk. And how we walk with God in theological terms is called sanctification. Deals with the process of being made holy over the lifetime of following Jesus. And we're gonna focus largely on that standing part for a second. There are two key words for us in Romans on that, justified and reconciled. Justified and reconciled. And these primarily deal with our standing with God. And Paul deals with these primarily in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And then in the beginning of Romans chapter six, he kind of turns a corner and begins to talk about how we live as a result. In chapter five, we're told that Christ has set us free from the penalty of sin. For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled back to God by the death of his son. And in verse 6, in light of what Christ has done, Paul wants to begin to talk about how we walk in light of that salvation. Paul wants to give us a hope for the future, but he also wants to change the way that we live here and now. And in this chapter, Paul begins to give us direction on how we walk with God. To keep with our theological language, he starts to talk about the process of sanctification, I was reading a pastor over the last several weeks and he writes, if we think of the gospel as only applying to our eternal destiny, we are shortchanging the death of Christ in a dramatic way. According to Paul, the gospel isn't only for the lost, the gospel is also for the saved. It's not only for when you die, but also for every day of your life. In fact, the only way that someone can truly live the kind of life that Jesus intended is to understand that the gospel is for your past, it's for your present, and it's for your future. It's the means by which we are saved, are preserved, or we're made holy and preserved until the end. And this is exactly the idea that Paul is driving towards in Romans chapter six, so let's hop in. We'll start here in verse one. And Paul opens with a question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, from a purely natural viewpoint, grace is incredibly dangerous. Because if you tell someone that God saves them and accepts them apart from what they do, then they're gonna have no motivation to be obedient. This gets at the idea of the rationalization of sin. Just the chapter before, in Romans chapter five, Paul writes, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. It gets at this idea of needing to keep God employed. By sinning, I have the opportunity to give God a chance to show his grace to more people. Now, we all have our own favorite sentence that we like to use, whether it's, this is the last time, or my personal favorite, at least I'm not as bad as they are, where I immediately jump to comparison and judgment. Or it could be worse. I could be doing X, Y, or Z, And it's at this juncture that what Paul is really asking is, do you understand who you are? Do you understand who you are? And what this comes down to is a dramatic misunderstanding of grace. In the church, we tend to have this favorite little two-word definition of grace, unmerited favor. And that is 100% true. That is a great definition. But I also find it to be a little bit uninspired. I remember in college walking into my pastor's office and I was struggling with this concept of grace because I was 100% living a double life at the time. You could say that the way that I was living on Friday and Saturday night didn't exactly align with who I showed up to church to be on Sunday morning and you guys can read between the lines on what that meant. But I was really struggling with this concept of grace. And I don't remember the concept the, the content of that conversation but I remember this pastor finally looking at me and he said we don't have an accurate understanding of grace unless we change unless it changes the way that we live that i didn't have an accurate understanding of grace because it wasn't changing the way that i was living my life and that's what paul is going on to tell us he says shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase in verse 2 he says by no means image that Paul is using here. If you look at the language that he's using, he's using the image of drowning. The old self being put under the water. It's being put to death and being raised to walk in newness of life. If you grew up in a more uh, liturgical church, you might have become familiar with the traditional words that they would use in baptism. Buried with Christ in death, raised to walk in newness of life. It's the language of Paul here in Romans chapter six. Now, back in the Middle Ages, uh, there were soldiers who took the sixth commandment incredibly seriously. Thou shalt not kill. And they recognized that this commandment was incompatible with their vocation, which was taking human life. And so they came up with this really creative solution. When they got baptized, what they would do is is they would get baptized, but they would hold their, whatever their dominant arm was, they would hold their sword arm up out of the water so that they went under the water and everything was raised to walk in newness of life except for this one arm which continued to live and was able to do whatever it wanted to do. And the basic belief was that the rest of their person would go to spend eternity with Jesus, but this sword arm would somehow be left behind that like 80% of them would make it in the end. And we chuckle at that because it feels like this really over-exaggerated example. But if we're honest for just one second, the reality is we all do the exact same thing. We so often say, I don't want to give up the stuff that I do. I would rather just add to it with all of this Christianity stuff. But the reality is, when we accept Christ, we get the death and the life. We don't just get the life, it's not a choice. Now what is your arm that you would hold up? Mine and probably many of yours would be a desire for the control over their life. It's manifested through a desire for security which leads to a pursuit of money or vocation, jobs, a general unwillingness to follow the rules unless they benefit me. Now control in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it's when we begin to not trust the Lord with our lives and we begin to try and do it our own way that we get into all sorts of trouble. Paul goes on in verse five and he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection Like his, For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, the body ruled by sin is natural. Those of you guys with small children or you guys are grandparents, this needs no explanation. They don't really need to know how to break the rules. It just naturally expresses itself. And if we're honest for a moment, sin is incredibly fun. It's natural and it's really fun and that's why it keeps us in bondage so much of the time. But Paul here is casting a vision of hope for us. We no longer have to be ruled by or slaves to sin. Rather, we have been set free. In Christ, we experience true freedom. Paul goes on in verse eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, the best way I can create an image of what Paul is trying to get at here is through the American justice system. We think about the concept of double jeopardy, not the TV show where you get extra at the end, but thinking about the fact that you cannot, once you've been tried for a crime, you cannot be tried for that same crime a second time. That is what Paul is talking about here. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. The death he died, he died to sin once for all time. So this means that I no longer have to do this dance of rationalizing my actions and then feeling guilt and shame when I screw up that keeps me in this perpetual cycle of guilt and shame and sin. Rather, what Paul is pointing to is the finished work of Christ. The price has been paid, and it's done. It's over with. In the same way, Paul tells us, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this verse is the foundation of the next three verses. Paul is saying count yourself, or regard yourself in this way, or look at yourself in this manner, because what you do will flow from who you are. So what Paul is talking about here is a perspective shift that's needed in all of our lives, Paul tells us that we actually have to get really serious about our sin. We must understand the addictive nature of it. He goes on in verse 12 to say, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Now, Paul uses a really helpful word here. He, called, he talks about something being an instrument. And so let's think about that concept for a second. Let's take a, a scalpel, for example. If I were to set a scalpel here on this stage, it is neither good nor bad. It just is. It is an instrument to be used by someone. And someone can pick up that instrument and they can do profound harm with it. Or they can pick it up and they can do profound good. They can bring healing in people's lives with it. Paul here is reminding us that our bodies are instruments. Our bodies are instruments, and they too can be used for evil or for good. Later in his letter to the Romans, Paul says in chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Jesus calls us to die to all of these desires and to offer every part of ourselves to him. And if I'm being honest, when it's put in those terms... I'm really not sure I'm ready for it. And for a long time, I really struggled to make sense of this passage until I saw it actually lived out in my life. When I was in college, I worked for an adventure therapy clinic, and for the most part I worked with children and adolescents who uh, didn't function in a traditional therapeutic environment, so we would take them outside and we would perform like an alternative method of therapeutic intervention. But one of the groups I actually had the privilege to work with through our agency was a halfway house. It was this group of men who were on a journey to sobriety. And in the middle of January, as the low man on the totem pole living in the Midwest, I had the opportunity to take him on a four-day backpacking trip with eight inches of snow and it being 10 degrees outside, naturally. And so we hike all day to get to this campsite. We get there this, that evening, and if you guys have done any backpacking or anything like that, you probably have an opinion. You either start a fire using like the log cabin. You like build a little log cabin, then it lights up, or you go with the teepee style. These guys took everything they could find in the woods and just piled it in one big pile and threw a single match on it, and it immediately ignited like nothing I have ever seen in my life. I have no idea how they did it. It didn't make any sense. But we sat around that fire all evening because it was freezing cold outside. And as we're sitting around the fire, these men look around and they realize that because they're with me, they're actually missing their daily AA meeting. And so they're getting frustrated. They start to complain about it. And some guy finally has the perfect idea. He goes, how about we just have our own AA meeting right here and right now? And they invited me to be a part of that meeting. And what happened in that meeting has profoundly changed my life. To just be a part of that one little moment in time. Now for those of you guys who are unfamiliar with the 12 steps, they offer a process and a path to free a person from a specific sin. In these guys' cases, it was addiction uh, to drugs and alcohol. And that, those drain them of energy and life, and so what the 12 steps do is they offer them a a path to free them for right relationships with themselves, with others, and with God. And there are four things that I saw on that trip that I think really helped take this passage and make it real for us. The first of which was a willingness to admit their identity. If you guys have ever been a part of a recovery group, when you go in, you introduce yourself, and you say, my name is JD, and I am an alcoholic. And the immediacy of that is that you are willing to come to terms with the fact that you have something you need to deal with in your life that is part of who you are. And if we really wanna get serious about sin in our lives, we too need to be willing to admit our identity, that I have a problem with sin. It's really easy to point the finger out there and they go, they have a problem with sin, but we have to be able to come to terms with and admit to ourselves and to others that I have a problem with sin. Here's the thing, sin loves to hide in the dark. It does, it thrives in the dark. And through admitting our identity, we bring it out into the light where we can behold it and we can begin to work on healing and reconciliation, where God can enter into those dark spaces in our life and to bring newness of life. Now, the second thing that I saw during that AA meeting was the profound impact that community and accountability can have in a person's life. Time and time again, what I heard was the role of the sponsor in someone's journey to sobriety. One person that they could call in a moment of temptation, in a moment of weakness, who was willing to step into the hurt and the pain and to say that I've been there and I understand what you're going through. We too, as those on a journey to follow Jesus, need people in our lives, those who have been there before us and those who are there with us right now, to walk alongside us and to say, I get it, and there's a hope and a future, and God wants to bring you into freedom in your life. The third thing is this group was currently working through steps eight through 10, which are all about the confession of sin and seeking forgiveness. What I saw that evening was a willingness by these men to admit their mistakes and not only admit their mistakes, but recognize how it affected their families, their sons, their daughters, their wives, their extended family, all of their friends. They recognized that their habit had caused pain and hurt, and they resolved to make amends. Now, this one is a really hard one for us because every one of us deals with sin. It's pretty easy to admit our own identity. I am broken. I am sinful. I am in need of a savior. Now, it becomes very, very difficult when I actually have to cop to what I've done. I have to come to terms with the fact that I have things in my life that have hurt other people. And we need to then seek forgiveness with the Father and seek forgiveness with others. Because sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. So often we believe that my sin is my sin, that it doesn't affect the people around me. It doesn't work that way. Whether directly or indirectly, our sin has negative effects on those we are in relationship with. So we need to confess, and we need to seek forgiveness in our life. Now, the last and the most important one is that these men were focused on one day at a time, one moment at a time, staying sober. If they focused on being sober a year from now, they were going to fail today. They had to say, I am not going to drink, I am not going to use today, in this moment. And we too need to invite the Holy Spirit in. Begin to allow him to change us from the inside out on a moment by moment basis because I am tempted by the sin of my past every day. That's the reality. Paul says, Sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. We come to a more full picture of the grace of God when we are willing to admit our identity when we're willing to allow a community around us to hold us accountable, when we confess our sins to one another, when we seek forgiveness and when we focus on one day at a time, one moment at a time, drawing near to the only perfect one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are the way. I thank you that you are the truth. And that you are the life, Father. We thank you that there is no way back to right relationship with you other than through your son. And God, that is a life-altering, life-shattering reality. And then, Father, we wake up the next day and we recognize that we now face the task of following after you more and more each and every day. God, we are all broken and sinful people, Lord. We seek to follow you, the only perfect one. And so, Father, we pray that as we admit our identity, as we lean into the community that you've placed around us, as we confess our sins to one another, Lord, that day by day, moment by moment, you are drawing us deeper and more near to your heart. Father, we celebrate what you are doing in our lives, Lord. We offer you those things that we so often want to keep hidden in the dark, and we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would begin to work your way inside of us. We pray this all in your name. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Messages podcast. You can dive deeper into the Messages Weekly by subscribing to the Conversations podcast, where we dig into the previous Sunday's message, unpacking how we can apply it further in our daily lives. See you again next week.